The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Give your attention, please, to the Word of God in the book of Genesis. If you've been here with us, you know I've been covering the narrative or story of Joseph, son of Jacob, in the latter part of the book of Genesis. It actually composes 14 chapters. It's almost a third of the content, about 30% of the content of Genesis. Therefore, I have not intended to deal with this story exhaustively with every paragraph and every chapter. I've been pulling episodes from it, and these two episodes that I read for you today from chapters 45 and 50 are the last of what I want to treat. I'll be going on to something else in the New Testament next week. But uh, listen as I read in Genesis 45. This is a very dramatic moment, the scene when Joseph has set up his brothers, planted a silver cup in one of the sacks of grain. That's the sack of Benjamin and uh, made it a situation where uh, everyone thought the person who had that cup was going to be imprisoned or enslaved or something. And that person, of course, is Joseph's dear brother, Benjamin. So his brother Judah, the older brother, who had given Jacob a pledge that he would protect Benjamin, has just given at the end of 44 his eloquent speech saying, please take me let me suffer for Benjamin. And I'll go into that as we pick up in 45 here, the beginning. Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it in the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been on the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. Hurry, go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and herds and all that you have. 
There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin sees that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry, bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. I have another piece to read in the last chapter, chapter 50, a shorter part as the epitaph of all things. Jacob came down, spent many years living there in the land of Goshen. God positioned Israel in Egypt. He wanted them there for things that would come in the future. But uh, after Jacob died, now let me read chapter 50, the very last page of Genesis, beginning at 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin." because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Years ago, I heard of an older pastor who was a wise counselor and comforter to people in times of suffering, and he learned to carry about in his Bible a what he called a teaching device. It was a simple cloth bookmark. Many of you may have a bookmark in your Bible. This one was woven of material black in the background and had three red words on the front of it that you could read. But also, if you have seen this kind of weaving, you know that on the back of something like this, the threads are loose and, you know, kind of hanging out, and you might discern, but you probably wouldn't easily discern what the words were on the other side by looking at the back. Well, this man would use this bookmark when somebody was struggling hard and saying, Pastor, I just can't reconcile this cancer in my family with with the goodness of God. How could there be a loving God if this would happen? How can there be a loving God with this calamity that has come to my finances or whatever. And the pastor would pull out the bookmark and he would show them the back. And he would say, here, I have a test for you. What does this say? And of course, most people would say, well, pastor, I I can't make anything out. The threads are, I know there's some pattern there, but it isn't discernible. I really can't read the words. The threads are all tangled together in no good pattern. And then the pastor would turn the bookmark over and show them on the front side where on red words against the black background it said simply, 
God is love. Well, that bookmark tells a lot about our lives. We go through events that seem unfavorable or tragic or extremely painful, and the pain is real, and the tragedy can be real. And it seems like what's happening makes no sense, especially when we say, I'm, I'm a servant of God, I'm a child of God in Jesus Christ. Why is this happening? I can't reconcile it with who God is. And we need to see the other side of the bookmark, which often we don't see for a long time in our lives. Years or decades might go by, and we continue to struggle with the unraveled-looking tapestry. But often over time, and especially when we consider the cross of Christ in our lives alongside these things, we begin to see that hidden hand of divine providence showing us the reality of God and his love and his sovereignty. Many of you, I'm thankful for you, who have told me of how much you enjoy Joseph's story. One person said, go on, go on, go on. I said, well, I'm I'm not dealing with it exhaustively, so I'm disappointing that person, but I have other things I want to go into here before the Christmas season. And uh, so I've dealt with key episodes of Joseph's life, and you see that I'm bringing it to a stop today. But I have two points to put before you, one from chapter 45 and one from chapter 50, the two passages that I read. And, and here, as we come to a conclusion of this great life that Scripture shows us, we have the epic theme found in the end of chapter 50, verse 20. All along, I named the series this, when Joseph says, you meant it to me for evil, but God meant it for good. This is one of the Bible's premier summaries, and it's presented not just in a doctrinal formula like you might have in the book of Romans or Ephesians or Galatians, but it's presented in story form. And people learn from stories. People love stories. I I saw there's some kind of a festival happening in Lidditz nearby of storytelling. I'm not sure when that is, but people are going to just come and tell stories. And, And most of us, no matter how old we are, love stories. When I break into a story as an illustration, lots of heads bob up. All of you who've been taking a nap uh, come alive and say, oh, he's telling a story. I better pay attention. Uh, I guarantee I see all these things from up here. Uh, The first major lesson we see here and we draw from this text is that Joseph symbolically presents a vivid picture of Christ as he is revealed to believers today. Joseph is what we used to call a type of Christ, a living symbol, not that he was Christ, we don't claim divinity for him, but in the patterns of what he did, he shows us things that Christ will do and Christ will be like. And nowhere does he more perfectly prefigure Christ than when, I think, this scene when he disclosed his identity to the stunned brothers. Judah, the older brother, was pleading for the life of Benjamin. He had promised Jacob, I'll take care of him. Don't worry, Father. I'll bring him back. My life is forfeit if I don't do it. And so when Benjamin was the one with the silver cup in his sack, Judah, all the color must have drained out of his face as he realized he was going to have to make this good somehow. So he's pleading with Joseph, bargaining with Joseph. And I think the reason Joseph disclosed himself and the emotions burst here is because Joseph finally saw that Judah, as more or less the spokesman for the other brothers, 
was showing real repentance. He was ready to put himself on the line and say, I am a sinner, O God. Hold me accountable for what I have done. The first time, really, that any of the brothers was doing that. And so we read how the emotional dam, and Joseph was an emotional man, as you can see, but with good reason in the situation. The dam broke, and Joseph's emotions could be contained. He could not contain this masquerade that he was carrying out any longer. And so the shock, he cleared the room of Egyptians, he made all the servants go away, although they must not have gone far because we're told they could hear, apparently through the doors, what was happening. As Joseph wailed, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? I am Joseph. The shock must have been tremendous because the brothers, you know, they've come and gone. They've encountered him several times. They've formed opinions of him. They've, they fear him. Now, they never thought this. And now the amazing thing, this is their brother. And if a man was ever fearful, it must have been those who had put him in the pit and sold him as a slave. They thought, this is it. We're dead men. I suggest to you that there's a similar awakening that can even be startling and fearful when a non-believer in our day and age comes to recognize the true identity of the Son of God and becomes a Christian. I was told that as our Congolese friends are meeting in the other part of our building, having a worship service right now, that just about two weeks ago, one of them, a woman who said she was a Muslim, profess faith in Christ. And she said, I, I was a Muslim, but now I love Jesus. What was her experience like? What a turnaround to turn from darkness to light. And so many people today are in this world. They're intelligent people. They're university trained people. They're PhD people who know a lot of things, but they don't know Christ. There's a verse in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 3 where The prophet writes, the ox knows his master, the donkey knows his owner's manger, but Israel, the favored people of God, Israel does do not know me, says the Lord. My own people do not understand who I am. Fascinating. Scripture is saying that so-called dumb animals comprehend certain things better than educated human beings do. John 1.10, you know, says about Jesus, he was in the world. The world was made by him. The world didn't know him. He came unto his own people. His own people didn't know him. They wouldn't have him. We cannot know God by our native abilities, our intelligence, our degrees, our learning, all the books on our shelves. I have a lot of books on my shelves. People are generally amazed when they come to my house. And in one sense, I don't like them to see all those because they, they, they sometimes say, oh, you must be a very smart person, as if I know everything. It's in every book. I'm not a very smart person. The greatest thing I've known in this world isn't something I learned by reading a book or reading a thousand books. It's by the revelation of God that I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ when I was eight years old. And God awakened me to show me that his son had been in the world offering himself for me. 
Remember Jesus asking Peter? This thing is actually the centerpiece of the gospel of Mark. It comes in Mark 8, right at the middle of the gospel, and and the whole thing kind of pivots on this. When Jesus asked Peter, who do men say I am? He wasn't just collecting an opinion poll. He knew what the answer was, but he wanted Peter to say the answer. And Peter, of course, said, Lord, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Peter. You didn't learn this just from being a wise guy in the world. You learned this from the Spirit of God revealing my true identity to you. Joseph mirrored Jesus in how he loved his wayward, undeserving brothers before they had any concept of what love was. And he was working to save them. Not, I don't mean spiritual salvation. I mean physical salvation of bread for them to eat. He was working to save them before they knew they needed saving. He was filling up the silos in Egypt before they even discovered there was a famine. Similarly, Romans 5.8 says, while we were still sinners, God sent Christ to die for us. God was saving us before we knew we needed saving. And another thing to see here of these brothers as they compare to Christian believers today is that as those brothers stood guilty and accused before Joseph and finally coming to accept the fact of their guilt, which Judah was doing, they form a microcosm of all the people in the world, men and women, Jew and Gentile, people of every race and color, people who the Scripture says are going to stand in a final day of accounting when all souls stand before God and Christ is the judge on the final throne. Romans 3.19 says when that happens, every mouth will be stopped and the whole world will be held accountable to God. You see what Judah was doing? He was trying to strike a deal. There's got to be some deal I can make with you, high lord of Egypt, so that you won't keep my brother Benjamin and, and make him your slave. Take me. He was trying all kinds of ways to make a deal. I understand that our president, when he was still a a businessman, Donald Trump, wrote a book called The Art of the Deal. I haven't read his book, but apparently it's about the fact, I guess, that Trump would say, well, you can always make a deal. If you're bold enough, if you have enough resources, if you have insider knowledge, you can always find some way to negotiate your way out of a situation or, or into a purchase or get someone else to do what you want. Well, there's no deal we can make with God for the debt that we owe. Judah was amazed to find that Joseph wasn't even interested in a deal, no matter how much Judah was willing to sacrifice, because Joseph offered him a deal that was grace or nothing. Grace or nothing. And so we hear in 45.4 there, Joseph saying, come close to me. The last thing in the world I imagine they wanted to do was get close to him. They probably thought his henchmen were in the next room ready to rush in with swords and do away with them. But he said, no, come. I'm your brother. Come close to me. Don't grovel on the floor. Don't be afraid. Don't be angry with yourselves. It was God who sent me here, not you. I see in this a symbol of the invitation of Christ to those who he had every reason to want to destroy, 
We are too are guilty like these brothers were. And Jesus, in effect, says, come close to me. Don't be afraid. I'm Jesus, your long-lost brother. His exact words were, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Joseph is a picture of Christ. But secondly, we turn our attention and our time short today, but Genesis 50 here offers a concluding point in our nine weeks of journey with Joseph. And I state it this way. God teaches us about his works of providence as seen in a real life, not in a philosophy class. That sounds like a funny point. Why do I say that? Well, the questions that come up because of Joseph are questions that you, if you deal with them at all in your life, you'll face them in Philosophy 101 if you ever take that. How can there be evil? Where did evil come from? How does evil balance out with God? How does the love and power and sovereignty of God fare against evil? These are questions for philosophy. And many people are glad to leap upon the cheap answers of man-made philosophy, and they'll say, well, yes, there really is evil in the world. Think of the, of course, one of the great examples comes the World War II, the Nazi death camps, the horrific inhumanity of killing millions by gassing them because of their ethnicity or some national problem or some political argument you had with them, and then burning their bodies in ovens, the horrors of those things. People say, there can't be a God when that happens. Why didn't he prevent that? The challenge is thrown out. And some people sustain their agnosticism their whole lives on that. They say, God didn't stop the Nazis, so there's no God. God didn't stop my grandmother's painful cancer. I I did have a grandmother who had painful cancer and died of it. God didn't stop that. Why don't I shake my fist at God and say, you killed my dear grandmother. You could have stopped that. And there's people who go through life, and that's their creed. They've got the philosophy class answers. God gave us answers in a real life when he showed us Joseph. He gave it to us in story form, not fictional story, real story. And Joseph here consoled his brother's who thought he might turn on them, who thought, okay, this is it, we're dead men now. And he said, no, brothers, you don't understand. Get this through your heads. You meant this thing for evil, but God took the very thing that you did, the evil thing that you did, and turned it for good. Do you understand? We're dealing with God here, not with supreme evil on the throne. There's two words in this theme statement of Genesis 50, verse 20. I wish I had another half hour. I'd I'd reel out dozens of verses that contain these two words in strategic fashion. The two words are very simple. They're they're both three-letter words. But God. But God the man who I think was the greatest English language preacher of the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, preached an eloquent sermon entitled that one time. The verses that I claim as life verses, Psalm 73, 25, and 26, contain those two words. There the psalmist says, My flesh and my heart may fail, 
but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do you hear that? My wife and I have a piece of granite on the hill behind the church. Go on up and see it sometime. Go see our cemetery if you've never been there. I'm amazed that some people don't know we have a cemetery. And there's a granite block there that says Rogers on it, and it's got all the right, everything on it but date of death. And that represents my flesh and my heart may fail. But it also implies, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Because on the backside it says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Think of Ephesians 2, 3, and 4. The passage that says there, we all by nature are children of wrath, but God who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. I could give you literally 50 such passages, easily. But God, the two words to interject whenever you're thinking that evil is on the throne, that evil is sovereign, evil is the last word, that's what Joseph's brothers thought. All you can do is try to make some kind of deal because evil will win. See if you can bargain See if you can somehow pay enough to keep the man off your back. The art of the deal. But Joseph comes and says, but God, it's not about a deal. It's about grace. The God of Joseph is still at work today doing wondrous, unexpected things. He doesn't always show us what's happening behind the scenes the way Joseph found out. We do have to admit that. Some of us go to our graves without understanding great and mysterious things that happen. Why did that happen? Why didn't I see the reconciliation? The reconciliation may be shown to us in eternity, but God will balance the scales in the end. We know that. He will. Here was Jacob who sent his son, Joseph, or he was unwilling to send Joseph, but he sent him to say, go look for your brothers. And then later on when he got the report that they thought Joseph had died, oh, Jacob wailed, oh, if I had never sent him, I should not have sent him. Well, let me tell you, Jacob was not like God the Father because God the Father never said, I should not have sent my son. God the Father sent his son, knowing what would happen, knowing that it wasn't just going to be a fake death like Joseph had with a bloody coat that he was fine. It was a real death. That he would go and he would be persecuted, arrested, stripped, scourged, nailed to a beam of wood. And he would die. And they would put his battered body in a cold grave. But that would not be the end of the story. And so God didn't regret sending his son because he knew the end of the story was... But God made him alive. That was the end of the story. Well, maybe we should say the real beginning. But God. Elizabeth Elliot is a writer many of you know from past generations. She died a few years ago. She lost two husbands in her life in terrible ways. Listen to what she wrote one time. Elizabeth said, At face value, the bare experiences of my life are not such that I would be led to conclude, if I were an outsider, that God is necessarily good, gracious, or merciful. I had one husband murdered by native spears, and I watched the second one 
deteriorate and die through cancer. And she said these deaths were certainly not obvious proofs of the love of God, quite the opposite. She said, my belief in God's triumphant love is not drawn from simplistic observation of events alone. Do you hear that phrase? Not drawn from simplistic observation of events alone, but, here's the but God part, but from deep wellsprings of faith in my living Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. She said the but God had to come from somewhere else because all I could see with those two husbands was God took them, but God raised them. That's what Joseph's God does. Joseph God is our God. We all too often are looking at the backside of the tapestry. We can't read the words on the front. Joseph's brothers couldn't, and finally they began to grasp it, and Joseph said, Look, guys, you meant it for real evil. I understand where you were coming from. You deserve God's punishment and condemnation, but I'm not giving it to you because God turned it for good. Somebody deserved to die for the kind of sin those brothers committed. Somebody did die. His name was Jesus. I pray you will not be stuck in the long-term spiritual ignorance of those brothers I pray you will come to God in the name of Christ and admit, Lord, I can't make a deal. I don't have anything to offer. I'm guilty. I don't know what to do. I offer myself to you. But tell him you offer yourself in the lasting and living name of Jesus Christ. And your God will say to you, Welcome, my son, my child, my daughter. For the God of Joseph sent his son into the very pit of hell for you. And now that son rules from heaven's throne to bless you and receive you and call you his own. Thanks be to God for that. Our Father, together we thank you for this picture you've given us in the Old Testament of your grace, your salvation. Joseph was not Jesus, but he sure did resemble him in many ways. Lord our God, we're still thinking we have to bow before you and tell you how much we'll pay or, or how we'll dedicate ourselves to you forever if you'll just let us off. Get us out of the mode of making a deal. Show us your grace. Fall upon our neck and weep on us because you sent Jesus for us. What a God you are. Amen.